Okay. Shir Shirim Zion. Let's actually look at... Uh, do you have Tanakhs in front of you? doesn't have to be an arts girl Tanakh. We'll get to that. I'm sure you've heard the anti-arts girl and Shir Shirim Shir a thousand times, but I have a new take on it. So. Um, it's, a, it's a classic red. Sometimes reds can become Shirim. Okay, so look at... Um, Let's look at Shira Shirim in Tanakh first. Um, Parak Zion. Pasuk. Um, let's, start, let's start at the beginning of Zion. Shuvi Shuvi Venechazebach, Ma Techazu Bashulamit Kimachola Tamachanayim. Ma Yaku Pa'amayich Benalim, Batsnidiv, Kamuke Yerichach Kamuchalim, Asede Aman. Sararech agan hasahar al yechsar hamazeg bitnech arimat chitim suga b'shoshanim. Okay, um, so here we have descriptions of the raya, right? All of it is in, you know, the it's it's in lashon nekeva, beginning with mayafu pa'amayich b'naalim bat nadiv, right? Calling her bat nadiv, etc., etc. So sarech agan hasahar. This is also a good, you know, g- good example. So he's describing her belly. Is her belly actually a pile of wheat? I hope not. That's kind of weird. I don't. There's actually a lot, a lot long discu- discussion in terms of what even the metaphor is supposed to mean. But again, using a metaphor to describe the be- beauty of her belly, which is like arimat chitim, which is a a what's the word? A sheave, not a sheave, like a pile. Bundle? A bundle, thank you. Very hard word, bundle. Long word. A bundle of wheat, which is encircled, which is hedged in with shoshanim. Often shoshanim are translated roses, lilies. Um, that's that's a description. So we have, again, this beautiful description that the dote has of the Rayah in Shirashirim and is part of many descriptions that the dote has of the Rayah in Shirashirim. So what do Chazal do with this? So if we look at Shir Shirim Rabbah, Sarich Hagan HaSahar, Sarich, Elus Sanhedrin. Okay, so it's not referring to the body at all. It's referring to Sanhedrin. Matin Okzeh Kodzman Jehu B'Meyimo Enu Chai Ela Meitiburo Kach En Yisrael Yechun Lasot Avachutz Misanhedrin Shalahem. And it's going to explain how this relates to the Sanhedrin more explicitly. And we'll get to that in, as it goes through each part. But the Sararech, which I believe is the belly, also is the navel, another word for the belly, I think. Is that true? Yes. Your umbilicus. Okay. The navel. Um, so Agan HaSahar here is interpreted as referring to the Sanhedrin, but it's referring to like a closed-in garden. Is that how they translate it? Oh, I just tried to open the art school. But if you look at the bottom of the art school, it'll give you a good translation. What? A moon-shaped basin. That's probably inflected some, somewhat from the medrash, but okay. So again, we have a description of the belly. Chazal say, it's not the belly. I think that's what they're saying, at least. Sarech elus Sanhedrin. This refers to the Sanhedrin. Just like a child, really a fetus, called Zman Shubameimo, Right, the nutrients come from the belly through the umbilical cord. Okay, 
So the first part of the Pasuk is interpreted as talking about the Sanhedrin. Then it goes into greater detail. Agan Hasahar Idra de Azhara. This refers to the um, what is it of the moon? I should have brought my translation here. Can we erase that? Idra de Azhara refers to the crescent of the moon. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the threshing floor, which was shaped in a crescent shape. Avun This is the one referring to the moon. In other words, the first one refers says that it's similar to the threshing floor. I'll explain what this has to do with the Sanhedrin in a minute. And Avun Barchisti says, there are some who call and term the moon Sahara. So either it's referring to a crescent-shaped threshing floor or to a, a moon. And what does this have to do with the Sanhedrin? Anyone learn Masechet Sanhedrin? Knows what the... Re- Good, exactly. They sat in a crescent shape. Anyone know why? Good, exactly. Oh, where does it say that? Oh, <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> See, I don't need to do anything because article's already done it. Um, good. So you have, you have, the the pasuk begins with saying that this is not referring to a belly or to an, an umbilicus, but it's referring to um, the Sanhedrin, and that comes from the fact that a, right? How does this how does this medrash work? The Sanhedrin is like the umbilical cord, just like you know the fetus needs the umbilical cord. So too, Bnei Israel need the Sanhedrin. That's the first way of kind of reading Sanhedrin into the pasuk. The next way of reading it in is through Agan Hasahar, whether it refers to a moon or flat or, or a threshing floor. In both cases, they are in crescents, and and the in other words, the Sanhedrin is a, is a crescent, and so too this this threshing floor threshing device. Or the or the moon are at least when it's not full crescents, um, and it continues interpreting this about Sanhedrin. Al yechsar hamazeg, another halacha, right? Al tichsar Sanhedrin me'esrim ushlosha. That the Sanhedrin can have less than twenty-three. Right, this is actually a mission mesechet nida, but it describes. When they used to have wine, it had to be diluted. You couldn't simply drink the fresh wine. If you did, you would go crazy. It would be so strong. So they would dilute it. And the port, the proportions of dilution were two parts water and one part wine. So even if many people had to excuse themselves or weren't able to come during a session of the Sanhedrin, you had, which is, you know, in the, which is 71, you had to at least have 23 people remaining, which would be a third approximately. Of that number. So again, there's another way of seeing um, seeing the Sanhedrin in the second part of that pasuk. Right, another interpretation and another way of reading Sanhedrin into this pasuk is that let not the um, Sanhedrin miss its mufla. This the term mufla is, has been debated um, very vigorously. Some have taken this to mean that he's like the the most important member of the Sanhedrin, that's actually probably now not what it is. Either way, there's someone called the Mufla, which can't be missing during the proceedings, and um, that's being referred to in the Pasuk. Similarly, Ayechsar Hamazeg, al Sanhedrin, la'atalacha. The Sanhedrin can't, can't not have the person who, who pours the halacha, so to speak, who is the 
who is the true Balalacha, who is the greatest Halachas there. Davracher, Aichsar Mazeg Lonechsar Mizga da Alma, which seems to be something else. As it says, Hashem Roi Lochzar. So this last one goes really against the thrust of the rest of the interpretations. The rest of the interpretations read Sanhedrin here into the Pasuk. And this interpretation actually reads HaKadosh Baruch Hu here, which is, which is also in keeping with what happens in Shira Shirim. Lo nechzar mazga alma. It's unclear exactly how God would be called the poor of the world. Any suggestions? I have my own funny ideas. Why would God be called the mizga alma? Hmm? We had two things. Yeah. Well, what? Right. I mean, but I think I think it's especially the rain. God is kind of the pourer of the world. He pours he pours the water down for us. I don't know if we even have to go to the Torah. He also gave us the Torah. But in other words, that last interpretation, which is kind of tacked on here as a davaracher, um, really goes against the rest of the interpretations, with all, which all, in their own way, say that this pasuk refers to the Sanhedrin. Okay. So basically, you have you have Shir Shirim Zayin. These psukim are clearly coins of shot talking about the Dode, giving physical descriptions of the Dode, and Shir Shirim makes these associations that basically each part of this Pasuk can be interpreted in light of the Sanhedrin. The way they sit, the role of the Sanhedrin, that it's necessary to Am Yisrael as the umbilical cord is necessary to the, the child, different halachot, it has to have 23, it has to have the mufla, it has to have the, you know, memazig la talacha, and that's that. <clears throat> now let's go on to another Pasuk. Just giving you again a taste for, you know, what Shir Shirim Rabbah is. But I think it's much more. Bitnech Arimat Chitim. Anyone want to read this one? It's actually, this one has no Aramaic, I think. So it should be easier. Any volunteers? Someone who hasn't read? You haven't read. Okay. So like your stomach is a pile of wheat. This is referring to the Sefer of Ayukra. Mm-hmm. That the same way that a... Just like the stomach, this stomach, the lev is mikan, right? You have the heart here, and you have the legs there. Okay. And it's in the middle. So too, um, the... Okay, so the belly of of um, the belly of the dode is associated or interpreted as the Torah Kohanim, as Vayikra, right? And I think if you know the role of Vayikra and also the Medrash of Vayikra, which is also called Torah Kohanim, Kohanim, you would know that you know what that meant for Chazal. You would know that it sort of is symbolizes the meat and potatoes of um, of learning. Right, so you know, ostensibly, it's simply saying that "bitnachari matchetim" refers to Torah Karnim, but it might be referring to you know the role of this kind of this type of Torah, so to speak. 
But okay, we have another association that basically takes the physical context, seems to throw it out the window, and brings in, you know, Tod Konim almost in its place, right? I'm reading this in a very art scrollian way right now. Okay, Arimat Chitim. So here we have an interesting play in words. Right. In other words, instead of arimat chitim, a pile of wheat, we now have arimah shalchataim. So if we were to read these two statements together, so the Torah koranim, right? Bitnecha arimat chitim. The bet then refers to Torah koranim vayikra with all these, you know, which is the heart of the Torah, both you know geographically in the sense that it's in the center, um, and arimat chitim is it's basically a pile of sins. We'll see what this means in a minute, but in other words, the potential for sin, the different averots that one can incur, which we learn in Torah Karanim, um, that's bitnechari matchiti. Okay, so now we go into a little more detail. Kama mitzvot v'diktukim. Okay. In other words, there are lean, there are light mitzvot, there are and right pigul and otar. Right, there's a specific halachot, arentot konim. Right, so in other words, you know, just like we said, the binach arimat chitim, if the betin means tot konim, and arimat chitim is kind of played with to mean arimat chataim. So that means, you know, that that um, there are basically tons and tons of potential sins that one can incur, which you learn in um, in Vayikra. And finally, Suga B'Shoshanim. Okay. Now this is should be more famous territory. This is like a very well known medrash. Okay, so the first example is Nida, which I'll translate in a second, but keep on going because it just multiplies examples. Okay. Right, so this is very well known. There are a few very interesting details in Rebbe Levy's kind of mashal. The way it usually is, it's customary 
Right? Adam no seisha ben shloshim uben arvaim shana. First of all, very interesting. And there's evidence for this. People used to get married pretty late. Right? So a person, a man, he's talking about a man here, generally would get married at age 30 or at age 40. Um, but that's not our inyan here. Right? You're supposed to get married at 18. But Benoit Shabola, people get married at age 30 or 40. Right? So not only that. So after having invested a ton of money in the wedding and in the hall and, you know, celebrating, right? So finally they come to Nisuin. Right? She says, I'm Anida. But the way she says that she's Anida is basically that she sees just a spot, small evidence that she's Anida. And nevertheless, Paresh Mimenu Miyad. So he immediately separates himself from her. And now we have a whole kind of it's not a dra- dramatization, but basically a heightening as to what the incredible thing that just happened. The Rav has a very famous essay on this, um, based on this yeah, medrash. Oh, really? It, yeah. What? Like you're saying the summer? Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. What was the context? Yeah. yeah. Catharsis. Okay. Anyway, so. There's a heightening here. Right? Obviously, this happens. Right? No one's around. Who, you know, caused him to separate? Was there some kind of, um, you know, iron wall between them? No, of course not. Was there a snake that bit them? Of course not. Was there a scorpion that stung? No. What was it? You know, what was this supposedly strong, um, you know, maximum security prison fence? That separated these two people who had been waiting, you know, for so long. Nothing except for Divrei Torah Shirachin Kashoshana Shnemarba Velisha Tikraf. Right? It's simply the words of Torah that are soft like a rose, as it says Velisha Tikraf. Right? In other words, there's a halacha that says in the Torah that one cannot come close to an Ishanida. And that's exactly what this couple did. And even though those are soft like a rose, that was enough, that was sufficient. Then we have another example, which I think is somewhat extraneous, to be honest. But in other words, we multiply an example. So too, if they bring him a plate full of kosher meat, let's take out the shuman for a second. But they say, that there's one piece of non-kosher meat that fell there. And then he holds his hand back and doesn't taste it. <clears throat> this is a little more curious because there are other people around. That's what I never understood about this from the Medrash. In other words, they t- maybe it's at later when no one's around. But in other words, they tell him, there is Chalev here. Are you thinking in terms of Rove? But I don't know how many pieces fell. It might be trying to say that he's being Machmir. I don't think so. But the... The the rest of the mashal goes the same way. That it says in the right? That it says that one is not allowed to eat chelav, and those words, those mere words, were enough to stop him from eating chelav. Again, that that part of the of I, I never really knew what to do with that. I mean, again, it's another example of the same thing, but. I mean, there are people there, so kind of the whole power of the of the first example is that it's just this couple, right, alone. In other words, Badafka in Yichud, literally. 
So there you can say, you know, no one else is looking, no one else would know, and nevertheless, they have the strength to, you know, separate. Um, and that is an example of divrei Torah were the only things that separated them. Well, the other example, it, uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe they tell him that it's that there's chaylev there, and then they leave, and then he's left alone with a big plate of delicious steak, and he doesn't eat it. Okay. Either way, I want to focus on um, the much more interesting story, I think, and that is the story of this couple. And again, what is is it doing the same things that we've seen until now? That is, until now you have a very physical description, which is kind of stripped of, his, of its physicality, stripped of its original meaning, and associated with Sanhedrin. So, Sarecha Ganasahar is not an umbilicus, not a navel, let's say navel, at all. Rather, it's referring to Sanhedrin in various ways. And Bitnecharimachitim is referring to Torah Koranim because the Beten is Torah Koranim and the Arimat Chitim is the Arimat Chatein. But the rest of the Pasuk, I want to know how it works exactly, right? Suga Kashoshanim. So, in one way, yes, it's doing the same thing. It's saying Suga Kashoshanim, Divrei Torah, or some kinds of Divrei Torah, I would argue, are, are Suga Kashoshanim. Right, even though, and actually, let me ask you to let me ask you to do this. I'm not going to. It's hard since you didn't have chavuta. But how do you, how does how do you think this works here, in terms of the words suga, kashoshanim, right, which means hedge with lilies, hedge with roses in the original context. But again, there's even in the original shot of Shushim, there's obviously something metaphorical going on, because she hopefully doesn't have like wheat on her belly. But in other words, the image is a pile of wheat, a bundle of wheat, which is hedged with flowers, with with lilies. And here, how does this work? How are these divrei Torah, kirachim, kishoshanim? So one part of it is explicit, right? Shoshana is very soft. And divrei Torah at times can be soft. In other words, that they're not as strong as a fence separating the couple. But anything more? I mean, what's the other word that's used here? You have shoshanim, which is good. Yeah, the suga is the hedge. In other words, there are the thorns. But what does what does the suga represent? It represents. It seems to represent the siyag and the Torah. That's not just my own homiletics. This medrash appears in multiple forms. I think the most beautiful form, which I didn't give you because it's not technically in a work of Medrash, is in Avot Rabbi Natan. Right? Um, many of us are learning Masechet Avot now, Shabbos afternoon, <clears throat> and we have something called Avot Rabbi Natan, which is considered to be one of the Masechetot Chitzonot. It's not like really, or Ketanot, I'm sorry. It's not a technical Masechet, but it has a relationship with Avot Rabbi Natan. It's kind of a perush, kind of stands on its own. And when it wants to interpret Avot's um, phrase, you know, Asu Siag Torah, it has a beautiful chapter on the different Siagim that different people in, in Tanakh made. Moshe Asasiag, Adam Asasiag, Kadesh Baruch Asasiag. And it talks about hedges. Hedges not as actual fences, but uh, as, as in enactments which were made in order to protect, right, as a hedge protects, different kinds of Torah, right? So we all know what a siyag is. In that context, there is this medrash, which 
basically is used to show, it's kind of hard to see, but it's used to show that Krav is the siag that the Torah makes, right? That the, that one does not even come close to an Ishanida, which is exemplified by the story, and therefore becomes even clearer of what the Sugava Shoshanim is. It's not simply Shoshanim are soft and the Torah is soft, but it's the combination between Suga Kashoshanim, the Siag, right? The Torah can act as a Siag, as a fence, to prevent us from doing certain things. That itself can at times be soft, be at times be not very strong, and nevertheless, it works, right? Nevertheless, the couple has the strength not to breach that fence, not to overcome that fence. But there's one more sort of obvious, not obvious, there's one more less obvious link here between this exposition and um, and Sugava Shoshani. Right? We have the comparison between the softness, the hedge, but what else? Sure. No, a fence of it's hedged with. This is a this is this is ba shoshnim with lilies. So, in other words, the image you have is you have a pile of weed. It's it's a it's a striking image. You have a pile of weed which is not protected, which is not hedged with a regular not picket fence, but whatever they would use as a fence. I don't know stone. Um, but rather simply with roses, lilies. And that's what, you know, that's sort of what any reader would notice. In other words, it's a very, usually you don't hedge things with lily bushes, with rose bushes, but that is indeed how, you know, how the image works. But again, what, I think there's one other thing that links Sugaba Shoshanim to what comes after it. You have the Suga, you have the Shoshanim. This, you can even associate also with the Shoshanim. Now you guys, it's not fair because you didn't really have time to work on it. But, right, the this whole mashal, and that's why I was saying that the second part is sort of extraneous, I think, um, is about Nida specifically for a reason, right? And this actually, if you've ever read Rabbi Lim's book, he has a discussion of this, which is called Hedged with Lilies, I think, and it's kind of a treatment. Hedge of Roses, I'm sorry. I did my Lilies thing, right? But the Shoshana is going to be it, it, it comes up right, you know, right in the story. Yes. In other words, when she describes that she's a nida, she doesn't simply say, Rather, right? So the Shoshana even kind of finds its way into the story as well. And the way that she described, she basically says, says that she saw a drop of blood that was like a Shoshana, was very small, like a lily, or like a rose, okay? It's red. Um, and it even works in that way. So in other words, the way you're supposed to understand, according to the Medrash, this, these two words, Sukhaba Shoshanim, is beyond simply um, that there are certain halachot, which are divretar, which are soft, and which act as fences, suga, but specifically, we are talking about nidat. In other words, in this case, the mashal is very much linked, I would think, with the exegesis, and that's deliberate. I mean, when Rabbi Levi you know, tells the story, he places in the woman's mouth, So again, if we were to go back to the Pasuk and kind of read as the, as the, um, as the Medish wants us to read it, 
Binachari Matchitim, right, the belly, i.e., Torah Kohanim, is um, a pile of sins, not a bundle of wheat, but a pile of sins, Chataim, Sugaba Shoshanim, right, Vayikra, which contains all these different halachod, have Divrei Torah, which are sometimes soft like lilies, soft, right, there's not that much protecting the sin from occurring. Like lilies, right? They're so, I'm sorry, hedge, hedged. Sorry, there's, there are many pieces to this here. I'm just reviewing all of them. Hedged, that they, um, that there's just this little protection. And again, like lilies, specifically in terms of nida, which indeed the halacha that's being referred to appears in Vayekra, right? That, <clears throat> which is quoted at the end, is part of... Um, that pile of sins, and I don't mean it in a disparaging way, that is Vayikra. A better way of saying it is, is part of that minefield that is Vayikra. In other words, Vayikra has all these different halachot. Sometimes the Divrei Torah don't seem to provide much protection from, you know, from overcoming that sin, but nevertheless, it works. In other words, Sugaba Shoshanim, you have this hedge of lilies, which is enough, even though they're alone, they will have the power to you know, withstand the temptation. I know you didn't have time to work on this in Chavruta. Does anyone disagree with the way I'm reading this Medrash? Again, there are many links to, you know, just the basic understanding of what the Medrash is going on. Anyone want to take issue? It's not really fair because we don't have Chavruta time. Okay. Let's let's pause for a second and read something that I'm sure has been read to you in many ranting sessions. And that is the introduction to... The art scroll, Shira Shira. Okay. Hmm? So we'll get to that in a second. But let me tell you what art scroll says about why they don't translate it literally. Rabbi Akiva, one of the greatest sages of the Talmud, said, All the songs of scripture are holy, but the song of songs is holy of holies, right? We'll, we'll see that if we have time. What is it about the song that raises it to so lofty a plane? The question is especially perplexing if Song of Songs is taken literally, for it appears to be a song of uncommon passion. Okay, so hold on. What is it about the song that raises it to so lofty a plane? The question is especially perplexing if Song of Songs is taken literally, for it appears to be a song of uncommon passion. So passion is kind of opposed to um, to loftiness. Okay. It seems out of place among scripture's books of prophecy and sacred spirit. I could hardly agree more. Moreover, although some of the sages wondered whether Ecclesiastes should be included among the books of scripture, there was never a question about Song of Songs. There might actually have been, indeed, a question about Song of Songs. Okay, but that's not where this rant is going. To both the sages of the Talmud and the classic commentators, it was clear that Song of Songs is an allegory a duet of longing between God and Israel. That is why we read it publicly during Passover, the time when Israel became God's people. Its verses are so saturated with meaning that every commentator finds new themes in its beautiful and cryptic words. All agree, however, that the truth of the song is to be found only in its allegory. That is why, in the interest of accuracy, our translation of the song is different from that of any other article translation of scripture. Although we provide the literal meaning as part of the commentary, we translate the song according to Rashi's allegorical translation, as he explains in his introduction, etc., etc. 
Yeah, now the, I'm sure the and where I've heard this rant is in basically justifying for at least retaining the value of learning the pshat of Shira Shira. But since this is in the class in Tanakh, what am I ranting about? What am I ranting and raving about? We just read, we just read, you know, two representative parts of Shir Shirim Rabbah, which in many ways kind of remove that passion, right, these passion descriptions of beauty from the Pesukim entirely. It's not a beautiful belly, it's a beautiful Sanhedrin, right? It's not roses, but it's Divrei Torah. <clears throat> now the question, though, becomes, you know, what really is Chazal's attitude towards Shir Shirim? And they're, they're talking about Rashi here, and Rashi, of course, is based very much on Shir Shirim Rabbah. But that's that's something that we have to keep in mind. Now, if you could turn your page over for a second to um, the Tanina. So there we have the thing that article just quoted. Amar Rabbi Kiva, based on a Mishnah, but it's expanded here. Amar Rabbi Kiva, Chas v'shalom, lo nechlak adam echad m'yisrael shir shirim, shlo titmati adayim. So Rabbi Kiva says exactly what Artskul says. Um, you might say that, he, you know, he doth protest too much. Too much. He's saying this because, no, 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 it can't be. Shir shirim for sure is, you know, unquestionably um, makes your hands impure, which means it's officially part of the canon. But anything that's part of the canon makes your hands impure. Because the whole day was not fitting, was not roy, um, as much as it was, as was the day on which Shir Shirim was given. That all of the verses are holy. In other words, all of the verses of Tanakh are holy, but this one is Kodesh Kodeshim, and as Artskel told us, Valmel Nechlika, what was the whole disagreement about? Al Kohelet. Um, are we going to read the rest? Yes. Amar Rabbi Yochanan bar Rabbi Yoshua ben Chamav Shuri Kiva. Kedivri ben Azai kach nechliku v'kach gamru. That's referring to something previously. Rabbi Yosef ben Azai avar lamatla. He had the following mashal. Lachad sholich shel chitim etzal anachtom. To someone who brought a um, saw of wheat to the baker. Amar lo hotzelo mimena kemach. Please make this wheat into flour. And even hotzelo mimena, or really solet, make me fly, fine flour, not simply regular flour. And what happens? Hotzelo mimena kloskia. He actually creates a cake. He goes a step further. Um, I'm sorry, kloskia solet achat. Kach kol chachmata deshlomo lo solet there's, a, there's some problems with the text, but Shir Shirim represents the you know ultimate of Yisrael. Shir Shirim hameshubach shebeshirim, hamulah shebeshirim, hamasalsel shebeshirim. No mar shirim v'nishpach l'misha asanu shirim ba'olam v'hilu shirot echal shpachot echala. I'm not going to go into what the last part part is, but basically you have to paint a you know a beautiful description and extulsion of Shir Shirim. What's going on here? Well, words, as I said, Rabbi Kiva seems to be like getting very defensive about Shir Shirim. Chas v'shalom lo nechlak adam achan miyisrael Shir Shirim shaloti tmati daim. Obviously, Shir Shirim is part of the canon. She'en kolam kolok kedak yom shenet basho Shir Shirim. So what's he saying? I mean, he's saying that Shir Shirim is obviously in the canon. That's not the machlok. The machlok is by Kohelet. But what what is this 
what is his rhetoric kind of masking? The fact that Shira Shirim is problematic. Right? Shira Shirim does it is a love story. And not only is it a love story, it doesn't say that there that God and Israel are involved, but it's this Dode and this Raya, and they love each other, and and there's nothing, you know, there's nothing in the text that would allow you to think that maybe we're talking about something greater. I mean, that's obviously a big part of what the machloket is. There was no machloket about whether it's, a, you know, whether Yishayahu should be in the canon. Um, there's a machloket about Kohelet because it has its own problems and Shirashirim because again, you know, what's there. So now when Chazal come to interpret Shirashirim in Medrash Rabbah, which is our compendium of Chazal's interpretations of Shir Shirim, what do they do? So yes, on one level, in order, in basically confirming with what Rabbi Akiva told us, they they kind of remove that whole element. Right? They take away you know, the belly and they replace they replace it with the Sanhedrin. They take away the roses and they replace it with Divrei Torah. But if that's the case, so, that, so then you know, what, what's Rabbi Akiva's rhetoric getting at? Which he's saying, okay, fine. So you have a nice, interesting way of reading Shira Shirim. And that gets you somewhere. And you can, you know, say that really Shira Shirim is this beautiful, you know, expression. There are different typologies. God is there. The Jews are there. The non-Jews are trying to come between God and the Jews. But why does that mean that Shira Shirim is Kodesh Kodeshim? Okay, it's a good book. You have to expend a lot of effort to explain how it's a good book. But how does that mean that it's Shira Shirim, that it's Kodesh Kodeshim? I'm sorry, that there's something very special about it, not only special, but holy. So I think implicit in that, I mean, it's almost obvious, is the sense that the fact that it's told this way, that it's told as this passionate love story, means that, and something has to be done you know, to that telling, means that there's something even higher going on there than was going on, you know, that then that's going on in a typical sefer, even in Yeshayahu with it, with its beautiful poetry. Um, if you'll see the introduction to article Yeshayahu, you'll know what I'm referring to there. I might even get to that. But in other words, it's not simply that Rabbi Kiva can make Shir Shirim palpable, but it's that when Shir Shirim is made palpable, right, and when he can show that really Shir Shirim is about these lofty ideals, and that is married, pardon the pun, to the passion of the story, that means that it has even more oomph. It's more powerful and more holy than anything else. That's kind of my reading as to what's going on here. Now, when you we return to our text, sorry, turn over the page. When we return to our text, so again, we start off with Sarecha Gan Hasoar, where it seems that it's kind of, you'll pardon, you know, de-eroticized, that it just is referring to the Sanhedrin and different very dry halachos regarding the Sanhedrin. But when you hit this Pasuk Suga Shanim, I think one of the very interesting things that happens here is the passion kind of returns the seed. It wasn't able to slip away. Rabbi, Rabbi Levi doesn't just tell a story. Um, first of all, he doesn't just tell a story about a tamchoi shel shuman, shel chatichot. Right? He doesn't just tell that second example. But he doesn't simply say, <clears throat> like really the rest of the section, that Elu divrei Torah, Shein Rachin Kishoshanim, and he might even add a mashal, mashal l'mahadavar domeh, l'hilchot nida, 
that you know even though no one's around still it's very you know still somehow this fence of Hilchot Nida will you know will prevent the couple from giving in to their passions instead he tells a romance essentially and look at each element there right it's interesting on the side that a person marries when he's 30 and 40 and we might have evidence that basically people didn't have enough money to get to get married earlier right the man would have to have some kind of means of support um, and they didn't but there's something else going on in that element right he's trying to dramatize it Adam no seisha ben shloshim uben arbeim this isn't some young kid this is a guy who's been waiting for marriage his entire life and not only that mishemotzi etziotav so he throws a big you know he invests he throws a big wedding ceremony another element she doesn't say you know I'm a nidag mura she says she says I saw a little drop right that makes her nida but there's a little drop maybe maybe she didn't see the drop maybe she wasn't you know she wasn't looking properly there are all kinds of elements here that would which again are part of this dramatization that would make it easier, so to speak, for them to give in. Nevertheless, parash mimena, not simply parash mimena, parash mimena miyat, and it continues. Right, it keeps it really plays this up. Was there a, was there a wall? Was there a snake? Was there a scorpion? No, 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 no. There's just divrei Torah. So I think, you know, I, there are many things that happen in this passage, but I think part of what's happening is that, again, the passion returns to the stage, but the passion is now coupled with the divrei Torah, right? Not only did we have sort of this drier stand-in of Sanhedrin for the belly and um, Torah Konim for the belly, but you have now a passionate retelling of, of an element in the love story, of Shir Shirim that you have here in Shir Shirim Rabbah. And I think the poetics of this of this of this paragraph kind of point in that direction. He's not simply eliding and erasing the background of Shir Shirim, which is this passionate love story. It is not literally a love story about someone who's thirty or forty, but is the is the background of the entire safer and he and he and he, um, you know, he contextualizes it within his interpretation of Suga B'Shoshanim. There are other examples as well in Shir Shirim Rabbah, where as much as it seems like, you know, you have different things, you know, you know, Shaddai Kemigdalot, Elu Moshe Va'aron. You have like, you know, just these stand-ins for something that otherwise is, you know, refers to something passionate. I think at the same time, it's, it's not replacing, but it's superimposing. In other words, just like in Rabbi Kiva's statement, where the Kodesh Kadashim means that not simply I have an approach to reading Shir Shirim and it works, but I can couple it with the passionate love story and now it really works, now it's really special. You have the same thing with what's going on, I think, in Shir Shirim. Even when it seems like there are these dry stand-ins for the passion, there are times when the passion still breaks through. Which leads me to my closing remarks. We might end early because I heard there's a lot of traffic and I have to get back to my daughter. But at the beginning of Yishayahu, I will do this. This is kind of going to summarize what I tried to do in the last eight weeks. The beginning of Yishayahu, this is another art school rant. I don't know if this one's as common 
as um, the Shir Shirim Rabbah, the Shir Shirim Art School Rant. But um, this is just a few lines. It is ironic that secular scholars praise Isaiah for his cadences and lyricism. People speak of Isaiah as a poet. He, the prophet who so condemned empty talk and insincere service. He also offered hope and encouragement to the downtrodden, the forlorn, and the childless. Right. So before I kind of show that there's this opposition between passion and loftiness, here we have something in a way even more troubling. But poetry and sincerity, um, poetry in service of God, um, etc. And lyricism as being like something empty. Again, in other words, it's not just you know an opposition, but you have you have an equation here. Empty talk, poetry equals empty talk equals insincere service. And this, to me, this rant is even more problematic, especially if you're learning Shayat. Right? What do we do with the fact that, what are we going to do? The, the Svarim and Tanakh are beautiful. They're gorgeous. So what do we do about that? Do we like say, ah, oh, gorgeousness is for the secular scholars? Or do we try to gain an appreciation for that poetry, that beauty, and obviously understand that this is not simply Wordsworth, but this is something far more lofty. What I tried to do the last, you know, seven sessions, eight sessions, whatever it's been, in terms of Medrash, is to show that Medrash isn't simply a perush, isn't simply sometimes a collection of interesting stories that are for Dipsukim, homiletics, exegesis, but there are, that Medrash, there are poetics of Medrash, so to speak. Right there are sometimes the medrash itself goes into these bursts of of, of poetry, this burst, these bursts of song. But really, if you read medrash carefully and you are attentive to the the poetry of medrash, the lyricism of medrash, I think that you know if if I've given you that taste for what medrash is, then you know hopefully I've accomplished my goals. Obviously. You know, there are lots of technicalities that we need to know to learn Medrash. But, you know, ultimately we need to appreciate Medrash as as a work that, you know, has these beautiful and incredible poetics. Um, and we'll stop here. We can have questions. Can we leave this on for questions? I don't know what the policy is because I never really opened up the floor for questions. I don't know how good your memory is, but if you can remember, you know, any problems you had with previous Shireem, anything with this, or we can just... Call it a day. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I was trying. I was like, no, I was trying to. Art school is always just a stick van, of course. No. By the way, just for the record, for the record, I art school has done incredible things, and this is all also part of the rant usually. Usually when people are writing, but I really mean it. I just I think in this aspect, which is a very significant aspect, and if someone were to write a dissertation in art, art school, you would see this three this theme coming through and through that the poetics are like the meaningless part, and what really you know our task is to do is to get to the inner meaning. It is if the inner, inner meaning is completely opposed and separated from the poetics. So that's that's exactly my problem with you know with that approach. Anyone else? No? Okay. Thank you. So now we can get back in time.